0: We're gonna start off talking about safety in our city. Do you feel like Edmonton is a safe place to live? There have been so many stories and reports of an increase of violence in our cities. One of the most top of mind being the recent shooting deaths of two police officers officers in our city, which I think highlights just how vulnerable citizens are feeling. Those two deaths resulted in the decision by the province to add 100 more police officers being hired between Edmonton and Calgary. So we're going to have a conversation about if, if that's the answer, hiring more police officers, getting more boots on the ground, or if maybe there's a different strategy to try to approach violent crime in our community and start to make people feeling safe again. Our guest is an associate professor Professor, excuse me, in the Department of Sociology at the University of Alberta. Dr. Tope Oriola is joining the show. Dr. Oriola, always good to talk to you. Thanks so much for making the time.
1: Thank you for having me, Chelsea.
0: This is a, a big issue with so many reports of violence and dangerous situations happening in our community. I'm curious to get your perspective if the decision to hire 100 more police officers, in your opinion, is the right or wrong approach and why?
1: Well, I think um, it is um, uh, a relatively small step. Uh, One that I think has the capacity to bolster public confidence, uh, at least in the interim. Uh, But I have um, cautioned that this is only a temporary relief. Uh, in terms of a long-term strategy uh, that's not going to be sufficient because these are not all uh, primarily or exclusively policing problems uh, we need to begin to look at um, what kinds of supports those who are you know, going to prison are getting behind bars because what, what we're hearing now is that a, a chunk of those violent incidents are being perpetrated by returnees uh, from incarceration uh, we also need to start talking about um, job training or so skill acquisition programs for those individuals, so that we, you know, we have some sort of uh, a pre to work program for them, so they don't return to the underground economy or resort to crime in order to um, to survive. Now, keep in mind, uh, when someone has a criminal record, by definition, they are excluded from most forms of lawful employment, and and that means that we're creating a relatively small set or a small army if you may of unemployed and unemployable individuals and and they are going to find means to survive somehow so there's a need to grapple with the reality and deal with it pragmatically There's of course the issue of um, post-release housing where do they go the research is very clear when uh, ex-convicts return to their former neighborhoods and their former uh, groups or associates it increases the likelihood that they will re-offend and of course Um, addiction support, mental health support and and so forth. So those are issues I think have to go hand in hand in terms of a robust and and, um, well-calibrated response to the current uh, issues.
0: You mentioned re-offenders and it brings to mind a term that has been thrown around a lot lately which is catch and release and people seeming to have a real issue with our our bail program and the, the softness with which some crimes are treated. Can you speak to that a little bit? So oh, absolutely.
1: So, uh, that, that term, uh, obviously, has been popularized in the last few days, mm-hmm. as you rightly noted. Uh, now, this was in relation to the, quote-unquote, principle of restraint that was introduced to the uh, Canadian Criminal Code and the Youth Criminal Justice Act, or YCJA, in 2019. Essentially, that principle mandates police services and judges Um, to release individuals who are incarcerated at the earliest possible time. In other words, do not keep them uh, prison for far longer than necessary, and to also uh, adopt less restrictive uh, measures undergirding their release. Now, that was a product of a specific socio-historical context. The over-incarceration of specific segments society, most notably indigenous individuals. So that was a a response, a policy response to that. Now, is there a need to revisit that, perhaps? But I I do think we have to be careful because what um, uh, some uh, advocates are calling for, without calling it so, is selective incapacitation. The idea goes back to at least the 1970s that a relatively small number of offenders are responsible for a disproportionately large number of offenses and therefore taking those individuals out of circulation, in other words, giving them longer and harsher sentences would help to reduce crime. Mm. Now those it work, yes, but it only works temporarily. It's been tried in countries like the Netherlands, for example, where it was found to have reduced theft by about 25%. But over a small number or few number of years, uh, uh, diminishing returns uh, set in because, again, you cannot keep people behind bars for too long. They will be released at some point. So it becomes a question of what, what uh, s- uh, state we wish to intervene. Now, mm-hmm. that idea rests on the notion of selective incapacitation that you take these individuals out of uh, uh, circulation, uh, keep them behind bars uh, uh, bars for a relatively long time and therefore we will have peace. Now it may work uh, for a a few years but in terms of a medium to long term social strategy it does not work. Now we currently spend over $120,000 per year uh, per federal prisoner as we speak and we're talking about over 30,000 federally incarcerated individuals. That number will balloon, the cost will balloon if we were to go the route that is being suggested in some quarters. Now, I do not want us to thread the path of California where by the early 2010s they were spending more money when came in their prison system than their universities.
0: Wow. Okay, so harsher punishment might not necessarily be the answer to see any type of reform or increase safety in our communities. It sounds like the conversation always, Dr. Oriola, goes back to social supports need to be increased. But this conversation is one that's been had before. So I'm I'm curious why now are we seeing so so much of an increase in violent crimes? I mean if the issue is that, you know, certain people are disenfranchised, certain people are vulnerable, they're gonna commit crimes, and that's Mm -hmm. always sort of been the case, why now is it an increase in such serious crime and such violent crime in our community?
1: Right. It, it's, it's, it's a great question and one that um, I, I, I don't think we have sufficient time to, to unpack, but, but I will say it is. Uh, We're just coming off of uh, a world historical period, two plus years of the pandemic, uh, with all of the uh, frustrations and mental health issues and so forth that that have accompanied that. Uh, Fairly high cost of living, uh, uh, not everyone is able to afford uh, uh, their their groceries and all of that. Uh, So we're living in a a peculiar circumstance. And and I, I do not doubt that the data, for example, that the EPA has put, are showing that a relatively small number of of, of offenders uh, were essentially re-offended, and so forth. So yes, we may make the plausible argument that some of those who have been released were not well prepared to return to society. But keeping them behind bar indefinitely cannot be uh, the solution or only uh, solution. Um, It just speaks to a need... Uh, to tackle these root causes. Wherever you have a fairly significant level of homelessness, this order follows. And various kinds of criminal activities are never far behind. That's not to say that the homeless are responsible for all crimes. I'm saying that the research does show a correlation, in part because homelessness means, well, people are sleeping in places that are unfit for human habitation. Mm -hmm. It increases their likelihood of uh, uh, encounters with uh, uh, criminally minded individuals. Uh, that condition in and of itself is an incredibly frustrating one and therefore actions like uh, open drug use, uh, if it's a legal drug obviously that in and of itself is a crime uh, and of course uh, uh, it, it, mingling with criminal peers, vandalism or the crime of mischief and, and, and trespassing and all of that begin to come into the mix. So. It, the, the earlier we began to deal with these underlying problems, which are not necessarily sexy in public discourse, they, they're not the most uh, uh, easily talked about because the they, 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 optics are strong and, and, and they're not, they don't lend themselves very well to political brinkmanship, uh, but they are in fact the underlying variables that need to be done right. or put in place, although I do agree, yes, we may need police intervention, but it's important we recognize that that is temporary. That's not what will, what will uh, definitively take us out of the roots on that.
0: Yeah, may not necessarily be a, a sexy conversation to have, but certainly mm. needs to be a priority. I, I mean, Ultimately, this is, it's expensive. It's expensive at the cost of human life, at the sense of safety in our community, uh, and of course, financially too. You know, you keep kind of throwing money at, at these sort of half measures that don't seem to solve this growing problem and the sense of unrest that we have amongst a certain group of people. Dr. Oriola, I have a couple more questions for you. Uh, I know you have so many uh, opinions and so much great perspective. So I want to keep you while we have you. We do just have to take a very short break. We'll be right back uh, talking to Dov- Dr. Tope Oriola, Associate Professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Alberta. Why cracking down on violent crime isn't easy or necessarily effective. We'll get back into it in three minutes. Talking about violent crime in our community and how to get a handle on it. Welcome back to the show. It's 319. This is Chelsea on Chad. We're talking to Associate Professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Alberta, Dr. Tope. Oriola. Dr. Oriola, thank you so much for sticking around on hold. Really appreciate your time this afternoon. My pleasure. So we're talking about violent crime and how it's such a complicated and, and nuanced issue. Uh, I wonder if if police training and more support uh, is one is one approach. Where do you land on that?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know what I think has been uh, clear in the last few years, in particular, uh, is the fact that uh, policing has fundamentally changed, and therefore, uh, police training needs to be uh, much more compliant the challenges of the 21st century Uh, as we speak as as you know um, to get into policing you need grade 12 level education and you're given training that lasts uh, six months and two weeks Uh, a chunk of that training is uh, marksmanship or target practice defensive driving and so forth and i recognize that increasingly several police services including the eps have thankfully included Community embeddedness in your training, but that still remains piecemeal. And in my opinion, not as uh, lengthy and as organic as it could be. Uh, and my recommendation on that comes from. Um, uh, the uh, recommendation that um, the, uh, Justice Frank Jacobucci who was asked by the Toronto Police Service as far back as 2014 to help look into police response to people in mental distress. And uh, Justice Iacobucci was very clear that there was a need, in fact, to focus on hiring not just graduate, university graduate-level officers, but also officers with backgrounds in specific disciplines, sure, yeah. like social work, nursing, and so on. And so forth. Now, there are police services in some of our peer countries today who now require a master's degree for certain promotions in service, with a bachelor's as a minimum entry qualification. So, uh, that's that's just to basically say that the terrain has changed. Mm-hmm. Nursing, dentistry, and all of these disciplines began in a similar way: skill acquisition and all that. But they have changed; they have professionalized. But policing has not professionalized the way that it, it 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 ought to.
0: And does available compensation then reflect that? Reflect those uh, requirements now with with EPS, for example.
1: Uh, well, uh, the the police in Canada are very well remunerated. Um, the the salaries are incredibly competitive. I, I would not say so for American police officers. It varies it significantly, whether you're working with NYPD, for example, or a 7 or 5% police service in, in rural Appalachia. Uh, but in Canada, it's relatively more standardized. Uh, within about 36 months of being uh, sworn in, uh, folks can earn as much as $85,000 a year. Uh, That is roughly what you get as a first-year assistant professor with a Ph.D. in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Alberta. Um, So I think that that's that's not bad uh, for uh, a a salary, um, given uh, the minimum entry qualification, length of training, and so on and so forth. So I don't see the salary as a problem. There are university graduates who will accept such uh, a position on the current salary. I don't think we need to spectacularly increase the salaries of officers in order to attract uh, university graduate officers. The current pay level is totally acceptable and is on par uh, with what folks earn in other fields uh, with higher qualifications.
0: Uh, Thanks for pulling the curtain back on that. Uh, I really appreciate your perspective on everything that we've touched on this afternoon. Dr. (laughs) Oriola, thanks for being on.
1: My
0: pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dr. Tope Oriola is uh, once again an associate professor in the Department of Sociology uh, right here at the U of A talking about cracking down on violent crime and how it's not an easy problem to fix and it's quite complicated.